Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Harnish is founder of the world-renowned Entrepreneurs Organization, or EO, with over 16,000 members worldwide. And he chaired, for 15 years, EO's premier CEO program held at MIT, a program in which he still teaches today. I met Vern 20 years ago. He gave me my first real shot on stage in front of 60 CEOs at that EO premier program. And I owe my career as a writer and speaker to a great extent to that moment. And I've enjoyed being a friend and follower and collaborator with him ever since. He's the founder and CEO of Scaling Up, a global executive education and coaching company with over 200 partners on six continents. Vern has spent the last four decades helping thousands of companies scale up, accelerate growth. He's the author of the bestseller, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. He authored The Greatest Business Decisions of All Time, for which Jim Collins wrote the foreword. He wrote Scaling Up, which is Rockefeller Habits 2.0, which has been translated into 22 languages and has won eight major international book awards, including the prestigious International Book Award for Best General Business Book. His latest book, Scaling Up Compensation, rocketed to the number one HR book on Amazon. Vern also chairs the annual Scale Up Summit and serves on several boards, including vice chair of the Riordan Clinic, co-founder and chair of Geoversity, and board member of the social venture Million Dollar Women. And he is a private investor in many scale-ups. In this podcast, he shares with us some practical, proven tips for designing your growth strategy. He talks about how strategy has evolved over the last few decades. He gives you a tool to help identify the right customer niche for you, a key lesson for keeping competitors at bay. And he suggests we should not be designing strategy at the office and instead where we should be designing strategy. Ladies and gentlemen, Vern Harnish. Vern, it is so great to have you here. So glad we finally got you on the show. Today, we're going to talk about strategy. I ask this question of everyone on this podcast, and I get this different answer every time, which is, what's your definition of strategy? Well, you know, we have the framework, right people doing the right things right. So it's figuring out the right things for people to do and that those right things are different than what everyone else in your industry is doing. That is the essence of strategy is doing it different. And why is that? It's the only way to not get commoditized. People like to talk about, well, we're different. But if you price the same as everyone in your industry, you're not different. Where Southwest Airlines did, and they even sub-branded transparency. If you hire the same people everybody else does, you're not different. And if you deliver the product or service in the same way roughly everybody else does, you're not different. And so strategy is about figuring out that difference that matters for enough customers. And you can scale up something significant. The other thing that we emphasize is people get all caught up in market share. And it's not about market share. It's about profit share. So we have what we call the 770 rule. You want to basically upset 93% of the market. You just want to find the 7% that aligns with what you can be best at. And you want to pick the 7% that has all the money. And it could be at the low end. IKEA has done that with flat packed. And they only have 7% global market share at 30 billion. Or you can do it at the high end. Apple, when they hit their highest market cap the first time, only had 7% global market share. Yeah, they are highest market cap company on the planet, but they own 50% of the profitability. Today, they own almost 70% of the profitability of the industry. 
Yeah, they're just barely double digits in terms of overall market share. So what do you say to a CEO that is oriented to, hey, let's go after a big share of a big market? We just talk them off the ledge. Now, look, you want to own 70% of a niche. The riches are in the niches. And we just drive home that phrase. So I'll give you a smaller company example. I know you got some big companies on here, but my buddy, Don Tangway, he's in the HVAC business, heating, plumbing, air conditioning. He was in Buffalo. He did it for everybody. Then he goes to Tampa and he said, look, I'm only going to do it for new construction and only new multifamily housing construction. I'm going to say no to everything else. And he's the 10 ton gorilla in Tampa making insane profitability. And he's being very careful not to say yes to single family and remodel and repair and all of that. And now all he's going to do is take that model to other cities where he thinks the puck's going. In Buffalo, where he got started, he's just a commodity, duking it out over price and for labor. But because he only does one thing and he's the best, he can actually have the best labor, he can have the best pricing, and he has no marketing costs. That's ultimately what you want in your strategy. How do you achieve brand so your marketing costs are lower and your margins are higher? And you got to know the market's trying to cause the opposite to happen. Yeah, yeah. That customer acquisition cost is maybe the most important metric of a growth company. How do you then talk someone through figuring out what that niche is? We at OutThinker, we decided maybe four years ago, we're just strategy. We're not innovation. A lot of people think it was innovation. We just serve chief strategy officers. It was magical. Once we said strategy, strategy officers, established enterprises, magic happened. But we just kind of lucked on it. How do you help someone figure out what that niche is? It's two things. One, you fire up accounting, which tends to be underinvested in in most companies, and you have them create those waterfall graphs. You look at your existing customer base and you figure out where are we making money and where we're not. And it's not equal across the customer spectrum. And all of a sudden you discover, wow, that customer that we seem to be able to land the easiest and make the most money off of, maybe we should go after more of those. First, it's data analytics. Look, there's no sports team that would think to operate today without a data analytics team. Now, the Atlanta Braves, looking at that pitcher and that batter means we better move the outfield over three and a half feet. It's first data analytics with your existing customer. Number two, it's niching out the customers that you serve and answering what you and I have talked about is probably the most important strategy question ever popularized by the late Clay Christensen, which is, so what's the job to be done? We use the example of Herman Simon's winter halter. They make commercial dishwashers, but the job to be done for a school is one big wash a day. For a hospital, it's sterilization. For a company, it's customization. But for hotels and restaurants, the number one job is it must not just be clean, it must look clean. And that's a different job. So even though you may be selling the same product or service to a wide range of customers, each segment has a different job to be done. Understanding that and then matching that up with what is our data showing? And that's when you begin to discover the niche you ought to go after. Brilliant. For those that aren't familiar with Herman Simon, you're referring to the book that he wrote about mid-market companies in Germany, right? Yeah, it's Hidden Champions. But these are multi-billion dollar companies that have managed to dominate a very narrow niche. And as a result, they make insane gross margins, 70, 80, 90% software-like margins. And they have nets of 30, 40, 50%. The riches are in the niches. The favorite one that I remember is there's a company that sells 90% of the glass that's used by museums for displays. And in the U.S., it's McElhaney family and Tabasco. And what's nice, they only had two products, red and green. 
Now, they've been slightly disrupted here recently with Sriracha, but they've had the lead for 100 plus years in doing red and green hot sauce, different sizes. And they've had that leadership globally. There's a joke that I heard in a talk show. They're making fun of a Sriracha. Is it a good product you should never have to advertise? Case in point, Sriracha, which goes back to your first point. The customers that is going to come to you. Yeah, the hidden champions, no market costs, huge margins. It comes down to this, Kion. We think the best strategy in the world is blackmail. A lot of money in blackmail. And that's what you're trying to achieve, a way to blackmail a market. Now, what does that mean? You have a patent in. You've locked down a critical component that allows you to control the constraint in the industry. I can give you plenty of examples around this. I think of Robert Taylor. I'll tell you one story from my second book, The Greatest Business Decisions of All Time, which I did with the Fortune Editors. And Jim Collins was kind enough to do the forward. And I love Robert Taylor. He's the one who created Soft Soap. 1980. He takes like 39 million the first year. He's looking to go in 100 million the second year. And he's got all kinds of problems, right? If you're going to have that kind of scale, distribution, supply, staffing, and all that stuff. But none of that mattered if he didn't really focus on the fact that the big constraint was that Colgate Palmolive was looking at what he was doing and was ready to rip him off. So he looked at the soft soap product and he said, where's the constraint? It was in the pump, the spring pump. And he said, look, there's only one company that made spring pumps at that time in the world. They were out in California. He visits them. He goes, what was your biggest order last year? And they go, yours, 5 million units. You know, he knew. Then he asked an interesting question. He goes, how many of these do you guys make? Produce a year. And they go about 100 million units. And he goes, sold. And he negotiated a 12 cent price, the $12 million purchase order, a million a month for the next 12 months. And he figured he could grow enough to fund that. But more importantly, he locked up the constraint. And as a result, when Colgate Palmolive, P&G wanted to jump into the market, problem was no pumps. And ultimately, Colgate had to buy him for a gazillion dollars in order to get access to the supply they needed to move the organization forward. That was the brilliance of Tesla this last year. They were the only ones able to deliver automobiles because they had control. The key was they wrote their own software. They were able to instantly rewrite the software for the chips that were available, whereas Mercedes-Benz had built on a platform of a thousand different chips, and they didn't control their destiny from a software perspective. So they've all now woke up and said, we're going to now own the software that runs our cars, and we're not going to have such a wide range of specialty chips. We're going to let the software do it, not the hardware. So it's about getting control of the constraint in the industry, and then you can blackmail it. Wow. You've just shared two ideas that are worth billions to our members. One is find the customer that's your right niche customer. And the other is control the constraint. What I love about your work is that you always have questions. You're always learning. How have you seen strategy evolve from when you started a few decades ago to now? The big thing, Kion, is a much higher quality set of firsthand data. Ultimately, our view is wars and markets have all been won through one thing, Intel. And so I think where it's really evolved is as we've seen in professional sports. I had Brent Snedeker's brother in my CEO boot camp, and he shared how Brent was the first golfer to hire a data analyst. And that was the year he won the FedEx Cup. 
And he had not won anything up until that point. So the real change, I think, is that we've gotten much more sophisticated in both identifying the data and analyzing it so that we can really fine tune what are the strategies, our pricing strategy, our location strategy, our product strategies. Those are all the four P's or four E's of marketing are often marketing strategy equals strategy. That's how it's evolved. The second is, and you and I were talking about it, I think it's some real practical things. I cornered Jim Collins a while ago. He'd been studying greatness for 25 years. I said, all right, what is the number one thing leaders need to do if you're going to drive to greatness? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, the council set up what he branded the council. It's different than your weekly executive team meeting. It's this hour. You can't work on strategy once a quarter or once a year. As you know, you got to work on it every week. Which right there is a little bit of not a radical idea, but that is a new idea. I mean, used to be strategy was an annual planning. Still many companies view it as annual. So I just want to underscore what you're suggesting here is different from historical practice. Gary Hamill called them headlight committees. I don't care what name you give it, but you need to have a small team that meets every week to work on these handful of big strategy questions. You need that talk time in order to figure it out. And the reason Jim branded it a council, not a compromise, not a collaboration, is that ultimately, and I just hosted in a workshop, the former legal counsel at Apple, one of the big conversations was, should they go into retail? And everybody counseled Steve that Apple should not go into retail. This is why you get paid the medium bucks. He said, look, I've heard you, I understand, but we're going into retail. That's why it's a council, not a compromise, not a collaboration. We really require a team to set up this council. It's not the whole executive team. Not all of them can really think strategically. It's usually four or five, a subset. It could be an outsider. It could be someone deep, like a Jonathan Ive at Apple, who can think deeply around design. And Steve Jobs, by the way, had lunch with him every day. So they had a chance to really discuss strategy in some sense every day. And then, as you and I were discussing, if your job's to design strategy, then you need a design studio. Any great creative who didn't have a studio, physical space. I shared the stage about a month ago with one of the top guys responsible for innovation at Disney. It was for a PE firm, K1, and they had their portfolio firms in the audience. And he asked an interesting question. Where do your best ideas come to you? For me, it's the shower, on a walk. Everybody had theirs. And then he highlights that none of you said the office. And it's true. So what we're seeing is the strategists that are able to really push through and have the breakthroughs, have this talk time at least once a week, if not for lunch every day, like Steve Jobs did. And then number two, had this place they could escape to that was away from the office that was designed to spur on their creativity. It had the views. I've got this most beautiful water view over the harbor here that just ignites my soul, Kion. When I was living in Barcelona, 6,000 miles away from my headquarters is probably where I had the biggest breakthroughs because the weather and my partner, John Ratliff, just down the road had a condominium that was floor to ceiling windows overlooking the Delaware River with the three screens and the whiteboards and the memorabilia that would ignite his soul. One last, Ralph Steyer Jr., when he took over his dad's company, Johnsonville Sausage, little sleepy sausage company in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He then turned it into a global enterprise. Upon his retirement, he reflected back and he said the single most important decision he made was to get an office down the road that he would go to and hide out for a day or two so he could really work on the business. John D. Rockefeller worked from home every morning, then come into the office till lunch. That's when he could really work on the business. And I hope you have a chance to tour his little mansion. His office is beautiful and the views over 
look in the valley. It's just inspiring. So the council and the studio, it's up just north of New York City, where he moved from Cleveland to New York Standard Oil. So the studio and the council are two of the most important practical things that a strategist needs to put in place. I have so many more questions, but I'll limit it to two. One is, what is a framework that you have found to be particularly valuable? Could be your own framework, could be another framework. We did create a framework called the Seven Strata of Strategy, and it was our way of integrating mainly most of the Harvard strategists, plus Gary Hamill and your work into one kind of frame that helps people make seven decisions that we think are important. But I also think, and I think it's underutilized, Michael Porter's Five Competitive Forces. Here's why. I'll tell you a final story. I had a chance, rest his soul, to interview Wayne Huizenga. And it was really one of my first articles I wrote for Fortune Magazine. Wayne is a blockbuster, waste management. And AutoNation. And AutoNation, yeah. He's the only entrepreneur who created three multi-billion dollar plus public companies in three different industries. I would say Elon Musk now has done that, maybe the second. So I went down to see Wayne and I'm like, how have you done this in waste, renting videos, selling cars? And ultimately, it came down to him understanding who had the power and then finding a way to switch that to him. So Blockbuster Video, the power was with the studios. There's only one Beauty and the Beast. It's not like you can bid that against anyone. And the industry, they said out of fairness, it was really collusion, that, hey, we're going to charge $65 for every video. And if you want Beauty and the Beast, it's going to be bundled with nine of our dog movies. (laughs) So essentially, Beauty and the Beast is going to cost you $650. And at two bucks a night, it's going to take you a year just to earn back your inventory costs. And nobody ever had the hit in stock. And so Wayne said, look, if I could get videos for $6 instead of $65, I could blow up in this industry. He ultimately cut that deal with Michael Eisner and the rest is history. He gifted the power from the movie studios to him because he had the distribution channel. He did the same thing in AutoNation. He ultimately realized that the constraint in making money in cars is that you need 80% new customers every year. And he couldn't figure out why. I mean, this is why you had to discount and do all this marketing. You need 80% new customers. And he said, if I could switch that ratio, I could blow open the industry. Took him seven years, Kion, he shared with me to figure it out, but he had the right question. He ultimately solved it in Denver with John Elway. And he said, wait a second. The reason customers switch is they just want a new brand. They're bored with the BMW. They want to try a Mercedes or a Lexus or Range Rover. So he said, all right, John, you've got a great sports brand in Denver. Why don't I buy you all the brands? Now, who bought him on this? The manufacturers. They had the power over the dealers. And he took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, they ruled that this would be anti-competitive to limit John Elway from being able to acquire whatever dealership if he qualifies. So he bought John all of them. Overnight, they went to $10 billion. He shifted the power from the manufacturers to him. So it was always about the five competitive forces model. And so that is supplier bargaining power and you're gaining bargaining power over suppliers in both of those cases. In both of those cases. They were the constraint and he was able to blackmail the industry. Brilliant. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions, but I know we're reaching the top of the time. How can people connect with you, follow you, be part of what you're doing with scaling up and the rest? Well, we had a branding problem ourselves. You know, it's all about the word or two you can own. So we had to switch our name to scaling up. If you need to scale up, we're the company. So you can go to scalingup.com. My email address is vern at scalingup.com. And we've got a whole bunch of free tools and the like, and the book's called Scaling Up. Just Google scaling up and you will find us 
And I've got a weekly insight that you can sign up for. I try to share some pithy, really practical ideas like this every Thursday. It might be a good resource for some of your listeners. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here and for what you do for entrepreneurs and growth companies around the world. Well, I want your audience to know you and I have been friends for decades. You've been our strategy partner for who we send our clients when they have deep strategy challenges. So I'm honored to know you. I owe my career to you. I said that in the intro. Thank you, Fern. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.